This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Zaratan. We here at the Word of the Week spend a lot of time charting the evolution of fantasy gaming concepts. Very few things in gaming are cut from whole cloth, as it were. That is to say, very little was simply imagined into existence in a single stroke. And so, we spend our time going back through editions of Dungeons & Dragons or through various iterations of video game franchises or film series, and then into literature and ultimately back into the myths of history or mythology until we find the first cause. The Alpha, that goes with the familiar Omega, that we drew from today's fantasy pop culture. And that's fun and all. But, just as in the real world, sometimes something doesn't quite make it to the modern age. Or at least, it doesn't quite manage to make it all the way to our current modern age. Sometimes, things die out. Sometimes, they go extinct. And sometimes, as we pour through the ancient records, we come across the fossilized remains of some extinct bit of fantasy fare. And we wonder about the poor thing. Why didn't it make it? Where did it come from? What evolutionary path dead-ended right there? Enter the Zaratan. While we were leafing through our copy of the Monstrous Manual for Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition, Published in 1993 to replace the earlier three-ringed binder of beasts known as the Monster's Compendium, we spotted a massive, majestic, evocative monster floating lazily in a tropical sea. It appears to be nothing more than a rocky, overgrown tropical jungle island. You know the sort. It's the sort of island where you'd expect to find Gilligan and the Skipper watching some movie about Tom Hanks and a volleyball on a coconut-powered television set. At least... It appears like that above the water's surface. But below the water's surface, you can see the island for what it really is. The shell of a massive sea turtle. According to the text, the island is several hundred feet across, and the head of the massive turtle is itself 50 feet across. The Zaratan, it explains, sleeps for many years, even centuries long enough that settlements can rise and fall on their backs without the inhabitants ever realizing that they've been riding a giant seafaring reptile. And if the Zaratan is awakened somehow or threatened, it will respond by withdrawing completely into its shell just long enough for the threat to go away. Say, about a decade. The text goes on to note that Zaratan tolerate inhabitants with good grace when they do become aware of them, unless the inhabitants somehow become bothersome to a giant, immortal, invulnerable, sleeping turtle. We presume, perhaps, by practicing bardic music too loudly, or pirates using their shells as mobile layers. And this being a second edition monster write-up, there are also interesting details about their metabolism, the decades-long courtship rituals that result in baby Zaratan, and how to map out their digestive tract in case your idiot players manage to get themselves swallowed by one. Now, as evocative as the Zaratan is, it's easy to see why it never appeared again in a Dungeons & Dragons product, save for one brief mention in the 3rd edition Arms & Equipment Guide, where it served more as a living vehicle than a monster. Frankly, it's boring. It's docile peaceful. It spends its entire life sleeping. It cannot be harmed by anything, and it generally means no harm to anyone. 
As an interesting story element, sure, the giant turtle carrying around a tropical island on its back? That works. But as a monster with a bunch of game mechanics and statistics? Not so much. But the thing seems to have vanished from Dungeons & Dragons altogether. It does make the occasional pop culture appearance, though it isn't often called a Zaratan and sometimes it isn't even a turtle. And that has to do with the weird evolution of the legendary beast that inspired the Zaratan and the setting that birthed the Dungeons & Dragons incarnation. In short, while we can't explain why the Zaratan went extinct, we can explain how it evolved. Now you might have seen giant island-sized turtles in other works of fiction. And if you've seen the lion turtle in the Avatar The Last Airbender series, or visited the Wandering Isle in Warcraft's Chinese-themed Mists of Pandaria, or remember the Asp Turtle from the Naruto animated series, you're probably tempted to think that the Zaratan is of Chinese origin. But you'd be wrong. Chinese mythology has a completely different giant turtle monster. One that also appeared in Dungeons and & Dragons, and one that continues to appear in D&D to this day. Chinese mythology gave D&D the Dragon Turtle, or rather the Dragon Tortoise. The Dragon Tortoise is a creature with the body of a giant tortoise and the head of a Chinese dragon. And figures of Dragon Turtles are said to bring longevity, harmony, courage, and success. In Chinese mythology, the Dragon Tortoise combines aspects of two powerful spirits. In fact, these are two of four very important central spiritual figures. These four figures guard the four corners of the world, one in each compass direction, and each influences a number of spiritual forces in the cosmos. Consequently, each is associated with particular colors, elements, virtues, and constellations. There's Baihu, the White Tiger of the West, Zuki Yao, the Red Phoenix of the South, Guixian, the Black Tortoise of the North, and Qinglong, the Blue Dragon of the East. These spirits have different names in different mythological traditions. In Taoism, for example, they are called Jianbing, Lingguang, Ming, and Mengzheng. And these spirits evolved from older tribal and pagan traditions that merged when China was unified. Now, the dragon tortoise isn't really a creature from mythology per se. It's actually an ornament, a decoration, that combines the spiritual elements of the black tortoise of the north and the blue dragon of the east. The dragon tortoise is often depicted as a small statuette or figurine, for example, and Chinese map makers used to draw it on unexplored territory. Not in a here-there-be-dragon-turtles sort of way, just as a decoration. And thus, no matter what Avatar and Warcraft and Naruto imply, the Zartan is not of Eastern origins. At least, it's not of Far Eastern origins. If we really want to track down the origin of the Zaratan, we have to consider how it got into the D&D game to begin with. Unlike the Dragon Turtle, which was published in every edition of D&D, even the very first one, the Zaratan really only existed in 2nd edition. And while it ended up in the reprinted Monsters Compendium, it first appeared in a supplemental listing of monsters specifically for use in D&D's Al-Kadim, the Land of Fate, setting. After the release of the second edition of Dungeons & Dragons in 1989, TSR, the company that published D&D at the time, started publishing all sorts of supplemental settings for the game. 
You didn't have to play in a generic fantasy world if you didn't want to. There were a lot of options. So many, in fact, that the fracturing of the fan base between so many different editions is often cited as one of the factors that sent TSR into bankruptcy. What were the options? Well, in 1989, if you wanted to play D&D from the deck of sailing ships that traveled between the planets on a starry sea of elemental fire, you could play in the Spelljammer setting. If you wanted to fight vampires and werewolves in a dark gothic horror universe, you could play in Ravenloft Realm of Terror starting in 1990. If you wanted to play a psychic sorcerer in a post-apocalyptic desert world that was basically Mad Max by way of Conan the Barbarian, you could play in Dark Sun in 1991. And if you wanted to explore an exotic realm inspired by 1001 Arabian Nights, game designers Jeff Grubb and Andrea Heyday gave you your chance in 1992. And as we owned Al-Kadim Arabian Adventures back in the day, we can tell you that the book was beautiful and evocative. Al-Kadim provides setting and cultural details for Zakara, the so-called Land of Fate. And Zakara was officially placed as a nation within the Forgotten Realms. That was partly to assuage management who were concerned that an entire new setting would compete with Dark Sun, which was doing well at the time. By selling it as a book detailing a specific culture that could be slotted into the Forgotten Realms, recalls Jeff Grubb, they were able to slip it by TSR management and develop it into a successful product line. Grubb also noted that the book was similar to an earlier book that detailed a specific culture, the Oriental Adventure Supplement, that was released in 1985 for the original edition of Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. This, too, was by design. Speaking of amusing design choices, there was a bit of an argument between Grubb, the marketing team, and the legal team about what to call the product line. Marketing wanted a nice descriptive name. Burning Sands was their go-to choice. But the legal team wanted something unique and easy to trademark. After a great deal of back and forth, they settled on an Arabic phrase, Al-Kadim, which Grubb and his team thought meant the ancient. Later, several Arabic speakers pointed out that Al-Kadim had a connotation that implied something had molded over or gone stale. As in, don't eat that cheese, it's ancient. Whoops! And of course, it was in that product line that the Zaratan made its appearance. And that's very helpful because it points us squarely in the direction of the Zaratan's mythical origins. After all... The Zaratan is referenced in the very collection of stories that inspired most of the setting's themes, 1001 Arabian Nights. Though technically it's from a different collection of stories that got sort of devoured by 1001 Nights. Now we've talked 1001 Nights before. It's a collection of Arabian adventure stories and myths bound together with the framing device of a woman who is trying to come up with a different story to tell her husband every night because she knows that if he ever gets bored, he's going to execute her. Seriously, go back to our episode about the City of Brass and learn all about it. Now, there are not 1,001 stories in that particular collection, but there are lots. And because it was a compilation of pretty much all of the best adventure stories and myths of its day, different compilations added different stories. And one late addition to many compilations was another collection of stories known as the Seven Voyages of Sinbad the Sailor. Those stories tell the tale of a down-on-his-luck merchant from Basra in modern Iraq who sailed the Indian Ocean and traded in China and the East Indies. 
This would have been during the height of the Islamic Golden Age in the Middle East that ended with the sacking of Baghdad around about 800 CE under the Abbasid Caliphate. Of course, Sinbad's adventures were filled with the wondrous and fantastic as they were actually based on a combination of older Persian, Arabian, and Indian myths, legends, and stories. And it was during his very first voyage that Sinbad encountered a Zaratan. Of course, that creature was anything but docile. In fact, it was downright murderous. Shortly after leaving Basra, Sinbad and his crew spy an inviting little island in the sea. Always eager for an opportunity to restock their ship with food and fresh water, the crew lands on the island and explores it for a while. Then they decide to make camp. But when they light a campfire, the island suddenly wakes up, because it's not an island after all, it's a giant whale. That's right, not a turtle, it's a whale. And it is very angry about the fire and immediately dives underwater. The crew and the ship are dragged down to the depths and lost forever. Only Sinbad survives. Which is a good thing. Otherwise, the other six voyages would have lost their title character. But if Sinbad's ship and crew were destroyed by a whale that's so big and sleeps for so long that it's mistaken for an island, why do we think that might be the origin for the turtle island known as a Zeratan? Well, because the creature was called a Zeratan. In the text. And incidentally, it was also described in several other prior Arabian myths. And it also appeared in an encyclopedia of legendary creatures that was published in the 14th century by Spanish naturalist Miguel Palacios. And he called it the Zeratan too. The thing is that ancient myths and legends are filled with giant sea creatures that are mistaken for islands until the crew of some ship lands on them and lights a fire or does some other stupid thing and then the monster wakes up and kills everyone. The monster is sometimes a whale, and sometimes a serpent, and sometimes a fish, and sometimes a turtle. But it always seems like an island until it murders everyone. And the creature has different names in different cultures and traditions. In the legend of St. Brendan, it's called Yasconius, which incidentally inspired the Magic the Gathering card. Pliny the Elder called his version of the totally natural, not at all made up, giant sea creature island Pristis, and described it as an immense fish. And in the very first recorded mention of the thing, in the 2nd century encyclopedia of totally not made up animals, Physiologus, it is given the Greek name Aspidokelone, which means asp turtle. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, sounds like the writers of Naruto did their homework. At least when it comes to giant turtle islands. When it comes to whether Ninja had historically dressed in bright orange jumpsuits, they could have spent a little more time on the Wikipedia. But we digress. The point is, whatever you want to call the sea monster disguised as an island in whatever form you want to give it, it crops up a lot in mythology. But also in a number of those encyclopedias that we mentioned above. See, throughout history, various naturalists have compiled the accounts of explorers and travelers into various tomes of fantastic beasts and where to find them. Newt Scamander was just following a tradition set down by such folks as Pliny the Elder and Aristotle to name a few of the very many. And we discussed that back in our episode about the Catobopes. And it has been conjectured that those fantastical accounts are often rooted in some kind of actual creature, usually one that was glimpsed briefly over the shoulder of someone who was running away very fast from said creature or else exaggerated by someone who had a near miss with such a creature and wanted to make it sound more exciting. 
And so it has been conjectured that tales of the asp turtle, whose name just means shield turtle because of the dome-shaped island on its back, it has been conjectured that the creature was based on sightings of an actual giant turtle. Of course, the largest turtle in the world is the leatherback sea turtle, but at a maximum of six feet long, it'd be hard to mistake that for an island. But it is just possible, according to some, that the turtle, or whatever animal it was, might have been bigger than any turtle we know of today, because it might have been a turtle from an earlier edition of Earth. One we thought didn't get updated with a new edition until it appeared in an obscure supplement somewhere. It happens sometimes, seriously. Every so often, an extinct animal turns out not to be nearly as extinct as we thought. What happens is that we turn up some fossil of some ancient creature that we've never seen before. So we go looking for the creature. But finding a specific creature on Earth can be pretty tricky if the population is limited to a very specific area, or if the creature lives in the oceans, of which we've only completely explored about 5%. And so, with a fossil and no living examples of said creature, we assume the thing must be extinct. Until we actually do find one. Take, for example, the coelacanth. The coelacanth is a seven-foot-long sea monster of a fish. There's no way to describe the thing. It's carnivorous with an ample collection of vicious teeth. But it also has a special hinge on its jaw that allows it to widen its mouth to kill and devour large prey. It is covered with scales, but not the regular thin silvery scales you see on modern fish. This thing has tough, thick reptilian scales. And it has an organ in its face that detects prey in dark water by zeroing in on changes in the electromagnetic field, which it needs because it lives in half-mile deep waters and hunts in underwater caves. If that sounds like some sort of prehistoric monster fish, that's because it is. The coelacanth evolved a long time ago, and fossils of it were about 65 million years old, meaning it existed and apparently died out at the same time the dinosaurs did. Or so we thought. One day, in 1938, the curator of the East London Museum of South Africa, a woman by the name of Marjorie Courtney Latimer, was shopping for fish in the local market, and she spotted an unusual fish. She bought the fish and sent a description to a renowned South African ichthyologist, a fish scientist, named J.L.B. Smith and he recognized the description as the 65-million-year extinct coelacanth. And he got very excited. See, the coelacanth was one of those holy grail-type creatures. Not just for fish scientists, but for all biologists. And that was because it had two very interesting features. First, its fin structures were somewhat reminiscent of primitive legs. And second, it seemed to be related to the contemporary lungfish. A lungfish is a fish that has lungs, hence the name. Well, it actually has lung-like sacs in its body. Lungfishes live in shallow, muddy waters. Usually there isn't much oxygen in the water for fish to breathe there. And sometimes, during dry seasons, the water dries up completely. The lungfish can survive in the low oxygenation by breathing air, and it can survive droughts by burying itself in damp mud and, again, breathing air. The other thing of note is that although the coelacanth was a contemporary of the dinosaurs, it had effectively stopped evolving for millions of years. Coelacanth fossils from 400 million years ago pretty much looked like coelacanth fossils from 65 million years ago. Why is that exciting? Well, 
When you add up the facts that the creature existed before animals crawled out of the ocean and onto the land, and that the creature's fins were kind of like primitive legs, and that the creature had proto-lungs, you have to figure this thing might have been the very thing that actually did crawl out of the ocean and turn into every vertebrate land animal. Oh, it also had a primitive spinal cord. We forgot to mention that. In short, this thing was the missing link between land animals and sea life, and we'd never get a chance to study it because it had gone extinct. Until some fishermen went and caught one in 1938, and a museum curator recognized it and sent it to an ichthyologist for confirmation. Amazing, right? So it does happen. It does turn out that extinct creatures actually survived into the modern era, hidden away in a very small niche habitat until someone discovers them. The coelacanth, the Washington giant earthworm, the terror skink. We're not making those up. Those are all creatures that we thought were extinct until we went and found one. Does that mean that ancient explorers really did land on the back of some prehistoric giant turtle or whale or fish they mistook for an island? Well, probably not. The Zeratan and the Asp turtle are probably just products of ancient embellishments and flights of fancy, inspired by perfectly normal creatures. But it is nice to imagine, once in a while, that some ancient monster that we thought was long dead might be rediscovered one day. Or that a really cool forgotten creature from some old Dungeons and Dragons supplement might be resurrected in a future edition. We're keeping our fingers crossed. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. Thank you.